Section 51 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Russell. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 3. The Nostos. Episode 16. Eumaeus. Part 6. It was a thousand pities a young fellow, blessed with an allowance of brains, as his neighbor obviously was, should waste his valuable time with profligate women, who might present him with a nice dose to last him his lifetime. In the nature of single blessedness, he would one day take unto himself a wife, when Miss Wright came on the scene, but in the interim, ladies' society was a conditio sine qua non, though he had the gravest possible doubts. Not that he wanted in the smallest to pump Stephen about Miss Ferguson, who was very possibly the particular lodestar who brought him down to Irish Town so early in the morning, as to whether he would find much satisfaction basking in the boy and girl courtship idea, and the company of smirking misses without a penny to their names, by or tri-weekly, with the orthodox preliminary canter of compliment-playing and walking out leading up to fond lover's ways, and flowers, and chalks. To think of him house and homeless, rooked by some landlady worse than any stepmother, was really too bad at his age. The queer suddenly things he popped out with attracted the elder man, who was several years the other senior, or like his father, but something substantial he certainly ought to eat, even were it only an egg-flip made on unadulterated maternal nutriment, or, failing that, the homely Humpty Dumpty boiled. "'At what o'clock did you dine?' he questioned, of the slim form and tired, though unwrinkled face. "'Sometime yesterday,' Stephen said. "'Yesterday!' exclaimed Bloom, till he remembered it was already to-morrow, Friday. "'Ah, you mean it's after twelve. "'The day before yesterday,' Stephen said, improving on himself." Literally astounded at this piece of intelligence, Bloom reflected. Though they didn't see eye to eye in everything, a certain analogy there somehow was, as if both their minds were travelling, so to speak, in the one train of thought. At his age, when dabbling in politics roughly some score of years previously, when he had been a quasi-aspirant to parliamentary honours in the Buckshot Foster days, he too recollected, in retrospect, which was a source of keen satisfaction in itself, he had a sneaking regard for those same ultra-ideas. For instance, when the evicted tenants question, then at its first inception, bulked largely in people's minds, though it goes without saying not contributing a copper, or pinning his faith absolutely to its dictums, some of which wouldn't exactly hold water, he, at the outset in principle at all events, was in thorough sympathy, with peasant possession as voicing the trend of modern opinion. A partiality, however, which, realizing his mistake, he was subsequently partially cured of. And even was twitted with going a step farther than Michael Davitt, in the striking views he at one time inculcated as a back-to-the-lander, which was one reason he strongly resented the innuendo put upon him, in so barefaced a fashion by our friend, at the gathering of the clans in Barney Kiernan's, so that he, though often considerably misunderstood, and the least pugnacious of mortals, be it repeated, 
departed from his customary habit to give him, metaphorically, one in the gizzard, though, so far as politics themselves were concerned, he was only too conscious of the casualties invariably resulting from propaganda and displays of mutual animosity and the misery and suffering it entailed as a foregone conclusion on fine young fellows. Chiefly, destruction of the fittest, in a word. Anyhow, upon weighing up the pros and cons, getting on for one, as it was, it was high time to be retiring for the night. The crux was it was a bit risky to bring him home, as eventualities might possibly ensue, somebody having a temper of her own sometimes, and spoil the hash altogether, as on the night he misguidedly brought home a dog, breed unknown, with a lame paw. Not that the cases were either identical or the reverse, though he had hurt his hand too. To Ontario Terrace, as he very distinctly remembered, having been there, so to speak. On the other hand, it was altogether far and away too late for the Sandy Mount or Sandy Cove suggestion, so that he was in some perplexity as to which of the two alternatives. Everything pointed to the fact that it behooved him to avail himself to the full of the opportunity, all things considered. His initial impression was he was a shade standoffish, or not over-effusive, but it grew on him some way. For one thing, he mightn't what you call jump at the idea if approached, and what mostly worried him was he didn't know how to lead up to it, or word it exactly, supposing he did entertain the proposal, as it would afford him very great personal pleasure if he would allow him to help to put coin in his way, or some wardrobe if found suitable. At all events, he wound up by concluding, eschewing for the nonce hidebound precedent a cup of Epps cocoa and a shakedown for the night, plus the use of a rug or two, and overcoat doubled into a pillow. At least he would be in safe hands and as warm as a toast on a trivet. He failed to perceive any very vast amount of harm in that. Always with the proviso, no rumpus of any sort was kicked up. A move had to be made, because that merry old soul, the grass widower in question, who appeared to be glued to the spot, didn't appear in any particular hurry to wend his way home to his dearly beloved Queenstown, and it was highly likely some sponger's body-house of retired beauties, where age was no bar, off Sheriff Street Lower, would be the best clue to that equivocal character's whereabouts, for a few days to come, alternately racking their feelings, the mermaids, with six-chamber revolver anecdotes, verging on the tropical, calculated to freeze the marrow of anybody's bones, and mauling their large-sized charms between whiles, with rough and tumble gusto, to the accompaniment of large potations of poteen and the usual blarney about himself. For as to who he in reality was, let X equal my right name and address, as Mr. Algebra remarks, Passim. At the same time he inwardly chuckled, over his gentle repartee to the blood Anun's champion, about his god being a Jew. People could put up with being bitten by a wolf, but what properly riled them was a bite from a sheep. The most vulnerable point, too, of tender Achilles, ear god was a Jew, because mostly they appeared to imagine he came from Carrick-on-Shannon, or somewhere abouts in the county Sligo. I propose, our hero eventually suggested, after mature reflection, while prudently pocketing her photo. As it's rather stuffy here, you just come home with me and talk things over. 
My diggings are quite close in the vicinity. You can't drink that stuff. Do you like cocoa? Wait, I'll just pay this lot. The best plan clearly being to clear out. The remainder being plain sailing, he beckoned, while prudently pocketing the photo, to the keeper of the shanty, who didn't seem to... Yes, that's the best, he assured Stephen, to whom, for the matter of that brazen head, or him, or anywhere else, was all more or less... All kinds of utopian plans were flashing through his, B's, busy brain. Education, the genuine article, literature, journalism, prize tidbits, up-to-date billing, concert tours in English watering resorts packed with hydros and seaside theatres, turning money away, duets in Italian with the accent perfectly true to nature, and a quantity of other things. No necessity, of course, to tell the world and his wife from the housetops about it, and his slice of luck. An opening was always wanted, because he more than suspected he had his father's voice to bank his hopes on which it was quite on the cards he had. So it would be just as well, by the way no harm, to trail the conversation in the direction of that particular red herring, just to... The cabbie read out of the paper he had got hold of, that the former viceroy, Earl Cadigan, had presided at a cab-driver's association dinner in London somewhere. Silence, with a yawn or two, accompanied this thrilling announcement. Then the old specimen in the corner who appeared to have some spark of vitality left, read out that Sir Anthony MacDonald had left Euston for the Chief Secretary's Lodge, or words to that effect. To which absorbing piece of intelligence, Echo answered why. "'Give us a squint at that literature, Grandfather,' the ancient mariner put in, manifesting some natural impatience. "'And welcome,' answered the elderly party, thus addressed." The sailor lugged out from a case he had a pair of greenish goggles, which he very slowly hooked over his nose and both ears. "'Are you bad in the eyes?' the sympathetic personage, like the town clerk, queried. "'Why,' answered the seafarer, with a tartan beard, who seemingly was a bit of a literary cove in his own small way, staring out of sea-green portholes, as you might well describe them as, "'I use this goggles reading.' Sand in the Red Sea done that. One time I could read a book in the dark, men are speaking. The Arabian Nights entertainment was my favorite, and red as a rose is she. Hereupon he pawed the journal open and poured upon Lord only knows what, found drowned, or the exploits of King Willow, Ironmonger, having made a hundred and something second wicket, not out for knots, during which time, completely regardless of ire, the keeper was intensely occupied loosening an apparently new or second-hand boot, which manifestly pinched him, as he muttered against whoever it was sold it. All of them who were sufficiently awake enough to be picked out by their facial expressions, that is to say, either simply looking on, glumly, or passing a trivial remark. To cut a long story short, Bloom, grasping the situation, was the first to rise from his seat so as not to outstay their welcome, having first and foremost being as good as his word that he would foot the bill for the occasion, taken the wise precaution to unobtrusively motion to mine host, as a parting shot, a scarcely perceptible sign, when the others were not looking, to the effect that the amount due was forthcoming, making a grand total of fourpence. The amount he deposited unobtrusively in four coppers, literally the last of the Mohicans, 
he having previously spotted on the printed price list for all who ran to read opposite him in unmistakable figures coffee two d confectionery dio and honestly well worth twice the money once in a way as whether a piece to remark come he counseled to close the seance seeing that the ruse worked and the coast was clear they left the shelter or shanty together and the elite society of oilskin and company whom nothing short of an earthquake would move out of their dolce farniente stephen who confessed to still feeling poorly and fagged out paused at the for a moment the door one thing i never understood he said to be original on the spur of the moment why they put tables upside down at night i mean chairs upside down on the tables in cafes to which impromptu the never-failing bloom replied without a moment's hesitation saying straight off to sweep the floor in the morning so saying he skipped around nimbly considering frankly at the same time apologetic to get on his companion's right a habit of his by the by his right side being in classical idiom his tender achilles the night air was certainly now a treat to breathe though stephen was a bit weak on his pins it will the air do you good bloom said meaning also the walk in a moment the only thing is to walk and then you'll feel a different man come it's not far lean on me accordingly he passed his left arm in stephen's right and led him on accordingly yes stephen said uncertainly because he thought he felt a strange kind of flesh of a different man approach him sinuous and wobbly and all that anyhow they passed the sentry-box with stones brazier etc where the municipal supernumerary ex gumni was still to all intents and purposes wrapped in the arms of murphy as the adage has it dreaming of fresh fields and pastures new and apropos of coffin of stones the analogy was not at all bad as it was in fact a stoning to death on the part of seventy-two out of eighty odd constituencies that ratted at the time of the split and chiefly the belotted peasant class probably the self-same evicted tenants he had put in their holdings so they turned on to chatting about music a form of art for which bloom as a pure amateur possessed the greatest love as they made tracks arm in arm across beresford place wagnerian music though confessedly grand in its way was a bit too heavy for bloom and hard to follow at the first go-off but the music of mercadante's huguenots meyerbeer's seven last words on the cross and mozart's twelfth mass he simply revelled in the gloria in that being to his mind the acme of first-class music as such literally knocking everything else into a cocked hat he infinitely preferred the sacred music of the catholic church to anything the opposite shop could offer in that line such as those moody and sankey hymns or bid me to live and i will live thy protestant to be he also yielded to none in his admiration of rossini's stabat mater a work simply abounding in immortal numbers in which his wife madame marion tweedy made a hit a veritable sensation he might safely say greatly adding to her other laurels and putting the others totally in the shade in the jesuit father's church in upper gardener street the sacred edifice being thronged to the doors to hear her with virtuosos or virtuosi rather there was the unanimous opinion that there was none to come up to her 
And suffice it to say, in a place of worship for music of a sacred character, there was a generally voiced desire for an encore. On the whole, though favoring preferably light opera, of the Don Giovanni description, and Martha, a gem in its line, he had a penchant, though with only a surface knowledge, for the severe classical school, such as Mendelssohn. And, talking of that, taking it for granted he knew all about the old favorites, he mentioned par excellence Lionel's air in Martha, Mapari, which, curiously enough, he had heard, or overheard, to be more accurate, on yesterday, a privilege he keenly appreciated from the lips of Stephen's respected father, sung to perfection, a study of the number, in fact, which made all the others take a back seat. Stephen, in reply to a politely put query, said he didn't sing it, but launched out into praises of Shakespeare's songs, at least of in or about that period. The lutenist Dowland, who lived in Fetter Lane, near Gerard the Herbalist, who anno ludendo hausi, Dulandus, an instrument he was contemplating purchasing from Mr. Arnold Dolmetsch, whom B. did not quite recall, though the name certainly sounded familiar, for sixty-five guineas, and Farnaby and Son, with their dukes and calm conceits, and Bird, William, who played the virginals, he said, in the Queen's Chapel, or anywhere else he found them, and one Tompkins, who made toys or airs, and John Bull. On the roadway, which they were approaching, whilst still speaking, beyond the swing chains a horse dragging a sweeper, paced on the paven grounds, brushing a long swath of mire up, so that with the noise Bloom was not perfectly certain whether he had caught aright the allusion to sixty-five guineas and John Bull. He inquired if it was John Bull the political celebrity of that ilk, as it struck him, the two identical names, as a striking coincidence. By the chains the horse slowly swerved to turn, which perceiving, Bloom, who was keeping a sharp lookout as usual, plucked the other's sleeve gently, jocosely remarking, Our lives are in peril to-night. Beware of the steam-roller. They thereupon stopped. Bloom looked at the head of a horse, not worth anything like sixty-five guineas, suddenly in evidence, in the dark, quite near, so that it seemed new, a different grouping of bones and even flesh, because, palpably, it was a forewalker, a hip-shaker, a black buttocker, a tail-dangler, a head-hanger, putting his hind foot foremost, the while the lord of his creation sat on the perch, busy with his thoughts. But such a good poor brute, he was sorry he hadn't a lump of sugar, but, as he wisely reflected, you could scarcely be prepared for every emergency that might crop up. He was just a big, nervous, foolish, noodly kind of a horse, without a second care in the world. But even a dog, he reflected, take that mongrel in Barney Kiernan's of the same size would be a holy horror to face. But it was no animal's fault in particular, if he was built that way, like the camel, ship of the desert, distilling grapes into poteen in his hump. Nine-tenths of them all could be caged or trained, nothing beyond the art of man, barring the bees. Whale with a harpoon, hairpin, alligator, tickle the small of his back, and he sees the joke. Chalk a circle for a rooster. Tiger, my eagle eye. These timely reflections and unto the brutes of the field occupied his mind, somewhat distracted from Stephen's words, while the ship of the street was maneuvering. And Stephen went on, about the highly interesting old... What's this I was saying? Ah, yes, my wife, he intimated, plunging in, medias res. 
would have the greatest of pleasure in making your acquaintance, as she's passionately attached to music of any kind. He looked sideways in a friendly fashion at the side face of Stephen, image of his mother, which was not quite the same as the usual handsome blackguard type they unquestionably had an insatiable hankering after, as he was perhaps not that way built. Still, supposing he had his father's gift, as he more than suspected, it opened up new vistas in his mind, such as Lady Fingal's Irish Industries concert on the preceding Monday, and aristocracy in general. Exquisite variations he was now describing on an air, Youth Here Has End, by Jans Peter Smielnik, a Dutchman of Amsterdam, where the Fraus come from. Even more, he liked an old German song of Johannes Jape about the clear sea and the voices of sirens, sweet murderers of men, which boggled Bloom a bit. Van der Sieren in die Stigkeit, tun die Poeten dichten. These opening bars he sang and translated extempore. Bloom nodding said he perfectly understood and begged him to go on, by all means, which he did. A phenomenally beautiful tenor voice like that, the rarest of boons, which Bloom appreciated at the very first note he got out, could easily, if properly handled by some recognized authority on voice production, such as Baraclau, and being able to read music into the bargain, command its own price, where baritones were ten a penny, and procure for its fortunate possessor, in the near future, an entree into fashionable houses in the best residential quarters of financial magnates in a large way of business and titled people, where, with his university degree of B.A., a huge ad in its way, and gentlemanly bearing to all the more influence the good impression he would infallibly score a distinct success, being blessed with brains, which also could be utilized for the purpose and other requisites, if his clothes were properly attended to, so as to better worm his way into their good graces as he, a youthful tyro in society's sartorial niceties, hardly understood how a little thing like that could militate against you. It was in fact only a matter of months, and he could easily foresee him participating in their musical and artistic conversaciones during the festivities of the Christmas season, for choice, causing a slight flutter in the dovecotes of the fair sex, and being made a lot of by ladies out for sensation, cases of which, as he happened to know, were on record, in fact, without giving the show away, he himself, once upon a time, if he cared to, could easily have, added to which, of course, would be the pecuniary emolument, by no means to be sneezed at, going hand in hand with his tuition fees. Not, he parenthesized, that for the sake of filthy lucre, he need necessarily embrace the lyric platform as a walk in life for any lengthy space of time, but a step in the required direction, it was beyond yea or nay, and both monetarily and mentally contained no reflection on his dignity in the smallest, and it often turned in uncommonly handy to be handed a check at a much-needed moment, when every little helped. Besides, though taste latterly had deteriorated to a degree, original music like that, different from the conventional rut, would rapidly have a great vogue, as it would be a decided novelty for Dublin's musical world after the usual hackneyed run of catchy tenor solos foisted on a confiding public by Ivan St. Austell and Hilton St. Just in their genus omni. Yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he could, with all the cards in his hands, and he had a capital opening, to make a name for himself, and win a high place in the city's esteem, 
where he could command a stiff figure and, booking ahead, give a grand concert for the patrons of the King Street house, given a backer-up, if one were forthcoming, to kick him upstairs, so to speak, a big if, however, with some impetus of the go-ahead sort to obviate the inevitable procrastination which often tripped up a too-much-fetted prince of good fellows. And it need not detract from the other by one iota, as, being his own master, he would have heaps of time to practice literature in his spare moments, when desirous of doing so, without its clashing with his vocal career, or containing anything derogatory whatsoever, as it was a matter for himself alone. In fact, he had the ball at his feet, and that was the very reason why the other, possessed of a remarkably sharp nose for smelling a rat, of any sort, hung on to him at all. The horse was just then, and later on, at a propitious opportunity he purposed, bloomed in, without any way prying into his private affairs, on the fool's step-in were angel's principle, advising him to sever his connection with a certain budding practitioner, who, he noticed, was prone to disparage, and even to a slight extent, with some hilarious pretext when not present, deprecate him, or whatever you like to call it, which in Bloom's humble opinion threw a nasty side-light on that side of a person's character. No pun intended. The horse, having reached the end of his tether, so to speak, halted, and, rearing high a proud feathering tail, added his quota, by letting fall on the floor, which the brush would soon brush up and polish, three smoking globes of churds. Slowly, three times, one after another, from a full crupper he mired, and humanely his driver waited till he, or she, had ended, patient in his scythed car. Side by side, Bloom, profiting by the contretemps, with Stephen passed through the gap of the chains divided by the upright, and stepping over a strand of mire went across toward Gardiner Street lower. Stephen singing, more boldly, but not loudly, the end of the ballad. The driver never said a word, good, bad, or indifferent, but merely watched the two figures, as he sat on his low-backed car, both black, one full, one lean, walked toward the railway bridge to be married by Father Mayer. As they walked, they at times stopped and walked again, continuing their tete-a-tete, -tete, which, of course, he was utterly out of, about sirens, enemies of man's reason, mingled with a number of other topics of the same category. Usurpers, historical cases of the kind, while the man in the sweeper-car, or, you might as well call it, in the sleeper-car, who in any case couldn't possibly hear, because they were too far simply sat in his seat near the end of Lower Gardiner Street, and looked after their low-backed car. End of section 51